0: <laughs> you should use this as like one of the funny intro things because that was pretty clever what i just said i mean i don't want to tell you how to do your job but yeah right i don't want to mess with your process
1: hi everyone welcome oh, to hold on, chi- we
0: didn't do we didn't, we didn't do our clap so this is how you know it's going to start
1: yeah i, I kind of stopped <laughs> i kind of stopped using that but okay. it's, it's, but I, I like that I like you, it I like that you continue. It's like, you know, it gets me, it gets your me excited get and ready to go. It's right. like,
0: it's like in, uh, football where they smell the, like the smelling salts. Mm. This is my like cue to like get smart and get ready to, to have a very good conversation.
1: Hi everyone. Welcome back to cheap talk. My name is Jeff Kaplow. I'm an assistant professor of government here at William and Mary and joining me as always is my esteemed colleague, Marcus Holmes. Hey Marcus, how are you today?
0: Pretty good, Jeffrey. What's going on? At the time of recording, uh it's a very nice day here in Williamsburg. I feel like spring has finally kind of sprung in its full uh warmth. You know, we've had like the temperatures have been sort of like all over the place recently, and now I feel like we're finally in the in the actual like springtime, soon-to-be summer weather here in Williamsburg, Virginia.
1: So, the in the last episode we kind of teased our topic for today. We're 20 years past the Iraq War of 2003. 20 years in one month, because we're we're a little late getting to this story. Because other stuff was happening, right? It's not our fault. There were balloons yeah. and whatnot. Spy balloons, yeah. Yeah, but we're back now. So, t- So 20 years after Iraq, I think we wanted to talk about kind of what we now know, what we think happened, what we still aren't sure about, given that. Twenty years of perspective
0: yeah i mean i'm I'm really interested in this um, for a couple of reasons, so you know the first one just generally, I think the Iraq war was, was I'll put my cards on the table a a bad idea, like I think it was a mistake, and I think the repercussions from that war uh are vast, and we could talk about them and, and how it sort of maybe forever changed kind of the international system and and the role of the united states and and the liberal order and all that uh, but I think I'm also interested in this looking back twenty years now. Because it seems to me that there's still a lot of uncertainty about, you know, this like, fundamental question of why the United States did this. Like if you if you ask, you know, a panel of experts, historians and political scientists and and whoever, you know, why did the United States invade Iraq? I think you're likely to get all kinds of different answers, right? It's like lots of different like sort of motivations and And explanations have been given. And it's a a weird case in that there's actually, I think, a a lack of overlap in some of these explanations, right? So, for example, you know, some people will say, oh, this is all about the sort of, you know, personal... Uh, politics of of George W. Bush, who was trying to, you know, get back at Saddam Hussein for these uh, uh, things that he had done in the past with his father, George Herbert Walker Bush and the first Gulf War. You know, it's a very sort of personalistic, like Bush had this vendetta uh, against um, Saddam Hussein in Iraq, right? And there's some evidence for that, of course. I mean, there's been reporting that after uh, September 11, George Bush, like, basically, like, wanted to find evidence really badly that Saddam Hussein was connected to it, and so on and so forth. So he's kind of looking for a reason to invade. And there's other explanations that talk about like oil, like the United States invaded because Iraq has a lot of oil and oil is uh, good for countries that use lots of automobiles and we could control the, the oil fields. And I mean, we didn't end up doing that. We didn't take control of the oil fields. And so that explanation is kind of a little tricky to, to, to make work. But my point is, is that there's all kinds of different explanations that are so different from one another. And it seems to me like we don't have a lot of certainty as to why at the end of the day, this did actually happen. I mean, do you, do you feel that uh, as well? Or do you think that the answer is, is pretty straightforward?
1: I don't think that there's as much mystery here as, as some people do. And, and Marks, you sent me, and I'll link in the show notes to a, a New York Times piece that lays out this idea that we still really don't know the, the reasons for the, for the invasion. And it interviews, well, it rehashes some old interviews with, with some policymakers who were involved who had kind of different takes on this. And and I guess the personal vendetta story and the oil story, I, I don't think there's a lot of support for, and you know they don't kind of come up on the top list of what's going on. You know, people often talk about the role of Iraq's WMD, the the role of nine uh, eleven, the idea of kind of shifting geopolitical dynamics in the world. That there was a group of people in government who were looking for an excuse to get rid of the Saddam Hussein regime, and I think. I think the answer is all of the above. Mm. So part of the problem here is that war is almost always multi-causal. It, it's a kind of thing that um, it's never just one incident that leads to war. There's always other factors, factors in the background. And so if we're searching for like the one reason that the U.S. invaded Iraq, I mean, I think we're always going to be disappointed because there are lots of reasons that the U.S. invaded Iraq and it happened that uh, several of those reasons aligned to kind of push those involved into a conflict.
0: Yeah. I mean, I guess a fancy way of talking about this is like, war is overdetermined, right? It's sort of like, you can look at this and say, I have 10 different, you know, variables that I think probably have something to do with why this decision was made. And all of them contribute something like some might be weighted more than others and and all that kind of stuff. But at the end of the day, like there's lots of stuff uh, going on here. I I guess I buy that. I guess I could buy the idea that this was, um, you know, sort of overdetermined in that sense. But it seems like, like looking back, um, on other wars, right? So like, if we, if we think about like, why did the United States get involved in Vietnam or why did the United States get involved in World War II? I don't have the same sort of level of uncertainty with those wars that I do with this one, right? So, so it might be the case that World War II was also overdetermined and that Vietnam was overdetermined. But I think those are actually a little bit more straightforward. This one just for whatever reason has like just so many different, you know, complexities built into it that to me, it's, it's a little bit perplexing. Um, but I do take your point that, like, clearly it's hard to, to find, you know, sort of singular reason for these things. And some scholars would actually argue, I think, that uh, it's actually a mistake to try to do this, right? So, like, it's it's sort of like we have these human um, sort of fallacies that, that you can kind of pinpoint some, like, causal factor. Because in our heads, like, causality, it's like, you know, X leads to Y. Well, something had to cause X leading to Y. And you could be like, well, sure, lots of things. But, like, what does that mean, right? It's like, well, you know... I can't picture in my head why several things would come together to get this, this one sort of instance to, to occur. If it's a one sort of causal thing, that's easier for me to understand. I can see it in my head. So I think a lot of people would say, like, well, don't even really search for the, the thing. Like, there's not going to be a thing. Uh, you can talk about different factors that were like in contextually, sort of around the decision to invade Iraq, but this sort of search for like a singular reason uh, is not only kind of misleading for the reasons you talked about, but also just philosophically like untenable because we're never we can't do it as as human beings to come up with some some singular thing, and so we, therefore by searching for it, we're actually like walking down a path that is more misleading than, than anything else. So I, I think you're you're probably right. Let me let me just say one thing though. Uh, uh, one reason from a a psychological perspective that gets proffered a lot that I don't actually think had a whole lot to do with it, and that is groupthink. If you go on the internet and you load up your Google or your ChatGPT and you ask for reasons why the Iraq War happened, you're going to get a lot of hits, a lot of returns that say groupthink, okay? And what groupthink means in the the context in which people are often using it is like this sort of catch-all term for, you know, the fallacies that happen in group dynamics, uh, the, the sort of like perverse sort of thinking that happens when you get a group of people together, uh, and they just like are afraid to say something and they don't want to rock the boat. And so they all kind of go along with what everybody else is, is thinking. Robert Jervis, uh, the late Robert Jervis, who was, you know, sort of the one of the pioneers in thinking about psychology and international relations, actually went back and did a study of of the Iraq war and the decision making that led to it. And what he found was like there might have been a little bit of, of groupthink going on. But the, the idea that this explains like why the decision was made, there's no support for that, right? In fact, you had officials, lots of officials in Washington, D.C., raising their hand and saying, I actually don't think this is a good idea. You had the equivalent of, of not red teams sort of formally, but people who would come in and say, you know, you're thinking about – this particular uh, situation of Saddam Hussein in the following way. If we think about it this other way, maybe we come to a different different conclusion. So I, I just encourage people to sort of, when they hear like, oh, groupthink is the reason for the Iraq war, uh, it's a simple explanation. I don't think there is a simple explanation for the reasons that we've talked about. And I certainly don't think that groupthink is it, if there is a singular explanation.
1: So I don't know that I... See groupthink being used as an explanation for the Iraq war in the same way that you do. When I see groupthink talked about when people are talking about the Iraq war, they are usually talking about, maybe I'm wrong about this, but my sense is they're usually talking about the decision, the thinking about Iraq's reconstituting of its weapons of mass destruction programs. The idea that that Saddam Hussein had biological and chemical weapons and was kind of rebuilding its nuclear program. That's the part that people point to as, as groupthink, that this was a an assumption that went unquestioned among the key decision makers because they were all kind of reinforcing their own belief in the badness of the Saddam Hussein regime and that this wasn't scrutinized the way it would have been kind of absent these group dynamics. I mean, do you think that groupthink here is about the decision to go to war itself or about this kind of preliminary step in thinking about the decision to go to war.
0: I think you're right that most people uh, use groupthink to talk about the intelligence sort of piece of it, right? So it's like we, we, we sort of convinced ourselves that Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction. Everybody in the room kind of believes he probably does. So we don't think about it uh, from like a critical perspective. And so that's kind of like groupthinky type of, of dynamics. But I also have seen people, uh, and we can maybe link to some of these in the show notes, like basically make the, 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 uh, claim that group was also part of the ultimate decision to invade, that this was actually like, they had convinced themselves that this was a good idea, that everybody in the room was nodding their head when Bush was saying, we're going to go invade. And, you know, I just don't think there's, there's much support at all for, for that piece on the intelligence side. It's, it's really tricky to tease out sort of like what role psychological dynamics were playing. And frankly, what role just the, like the misleading intelligence? Like they had they had the intelligence reports, some intelligence reports suggesting that there are weapons of mass uh, destruction or they had a weapons of mass destruction program. It was all kind of very vague at the time. And I guess it's, you know, it, in reality, it really was vague. Um, and so people are making sort of connections to... Uh, the fact that he might have weapons of mass destruction based on what turned out to be sort of faulty intelligence, right? So I don't, I'm not sure it's so much groupthink that's driving that. I think it's just in the absence, if you don't have that faulty intelligence, I'm not sure the groupthink is going to get you to a point where you're like, okay, now we need to go take out uh, uh, Saddam Hussein because he has weapons of mass destruction or whatever. I think ultimately it was the intelligence failure um, that explains more of it than any sort of psychological dynamic, just on the weapons of mass destruction
1: part. All right. Well, maybe we should talk more about the, the intelligence side of it. But I, I, I'm just yeah. a, one more point on the groupthink idea. One of the points that this, this New York Times article makes that I think is kind of worth remembering is there wasn't really a decision to go to war in Iraq in, in the way that we kind of imagine these decisions ought to be made. Like you get all the cabinet secretaries or not really like or you assemble the National Security Council and you sit everybody down. And you're like, OK, are we doing this or are we not doing this? And you have you have a vote. Or some kind of discussion about it. It doesn't seem like any of that actually happened in the George W. Bush administration, that it just kind of, you know, there were approvals for things, sure. But there wasn't this kind of sense, are we making this decision now today? This is the decision. And so part of the dynamic that would have come into play of groupthink there like didn't even have a chance to rear its head because there wasn't this one impactful meeting where the group could kind of fall into this pathology of cognitive bias. Right.
0: Yeah, that's true. I mean, it's really, I mean, we're going to go on a little bit of a tangent, I guess, but like I I do think it's kind of interesting to, if you think back historically, there are other examples like of this happening, right? So one of the the papers I'm working on right now is looking at the Bay of Pigs, you know, uh, fiasco with John F. Kennedy. And there, there, there's a meeting in that case. Like they have this meeting where, you know, the Joint Chiefs are there and he kind of Kennedy goes around the room and sort of says, like, what do you think? What do you think? But most people are, are kind of for it. There's a couple of uh, very important people who are against it. And then he says at the end of the meeting, like, oh, OK, that's interesting. Like we should sleep on it. But then that's it. Like they don't have another meeting of that same group of people. So it's sort of like you could ask yourself a question. Was a decision made? In that meeting, like when Kennedy says like, oh OK, that seems like most people are for it, like we'll sleep on it. Or was it the next day that he made the decision? In, in other words, like it does seem to be historically that there are these moments where like you don't always get this sort of like let's sit around a room. Let's take a vote. And whoever has the most votes is going to win. And then I'm going to tell the military, let's go invade. Like it doesn't really work that way. It's more of kind of this like weird sort of diffuse process that takes place over the span of, you know, days, sometimes weeks. And it can be hard, I think, to, to go back in a case study and say, this was the moment that the decision was made. Because I think you're right. I don't think you're ever going to find those moments often. You know, so I don't think it's just the Iraq case. I think there's other examples where like, there just wasn't a a, a decision that was made, yet for some reason, it didn't matter because the thing happened anyway. You know, I think Richard Haas has this, this line in the article that we, the New York Times, like, decision wasn't like made, a decision happened or something like that, like some kind of language. And that kind of captures it, right? It's like... You don't necessarily need to make an active like we are going to do this now and I approve it and I've signed off of it and I'm sending the email right now to tell people to put this in. It can happen lots of other ways and, and some of them are much more kinda kinda weird in that in that sense. Anyway.
1: Right. I mean in, in some ways the the dozens of decisions that or even hundreds of decisions that led to the war, make it so there isn't any real decision. Because all of these right. small decisions, okay, we're going to move troops here, we're going to ready this group, we're going to uh, transfer money in this way, all, all of those little decisions kind of create the war itself without there ever being this momentous you know, meeting right. where everyone kind of talks it out. So, I right. Think but on the other hand, and I agree with that. But on the other hand, surely there was some, at some point
0: in time where George W. Bush, as the president of the United States, the 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 you know, chief executive, said in, internally in his mind, "I want to do this. Like, I want to invade Iraq. Whether that was on September 11th, whether that was before September 11th, whether it was two days after September 11th, he clearly at some point in his own mind decided this is this is what I I want to do. I I would think." I would think. Now, I, I don't know George W. Bush. Maybe that's not how he operates. Maybe that he actually didn't think this, these things and it was other people. It was, you know, uh, uh, Dick Cheney or Rumsfeld or whoever. But, like, it does seem like there had to be a moment at least where some decision makers had kind of made up their mind, this is, this is what I want to do. But looking at it from the outside in, as analysts, you're never really going to be able to find that moment unless, you know, George W. Bush was you know, writing a diary or something on you know, September 12th, I'm going to go invade Iraq. Maybe that exists. I don't I don't know. But that's the type of thing that you would need to sort of have this idea of exactly when the decision uh, was made. So let me ask you a question, Jeff, you you have, you know, some in, in, intelligence knowledge. Uh, what what exactly was the problem here? Like, so we, we all know that, you know, Colin Powell went uh, in front of the D. And, and showed that vial, uh, first of all what was that supposed to show and how did he get wrapped up in that but but like what what happened here like why why did they get this so wrong why did the intelligence community think seem to think that there was a pretty good uh, probability that Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction, however, we're going to define. I mean, again, this is such a weird uh, case because that, that for some people, that meant like nuclear weapons. For some people, that meant chemical weapons. For some people, that meant like really bad weapons that can kill lots of people, but they're not, not necessarily chemical. They're just like regular missiles or whatever. So we're not really clear on what the WMDs were supposed to be. But like, why did the U.S. intelligence services believe that, that Saddam Hussein likely had a weapons of mass destruction program? And why did they get this so wrong?
1: Yeah, I mean that's a that's a big question. I think the the first thing to address there, though, is did this matter for the decision if there was a decision to to, to go to war? Right? I mean, th- there's been a lot of agonizing um, in the intelligence community. We can talk about this about the Iraq WMD judgments, how they went wrong, what we can do to not make the same mistakes again. All of that is really important, but I do want to address the kind of bigger picture question: is like. Did it matter that the intelligence community got this judgment wrong? That is, had they gotten the judgment right and said, hey, we don't think there are WMD in this country or, you know, we have a lot of uncertainty or, you know, there was a high confidence judgment that that Iraq had WMD. If, we, if they had been a low confidence or if they hadn't judged that at all, would this have changed anything about the invasion. And I think there's, there are reasons to think it would not have. And, you know, we, we can kind of talk more about this. When, when it comes to the multi-causal idea, right, that there are a lot of things driving conflict, one of the things that, that some scholars have pointed to is this idea of window of opportunity or like an underlying commitment problem, to use um, more academic bargaining language, that may have driven some of this conflict. So um, the idea here is that uh, 9-11 happens changes the U.S. outlook on what they're going to have to deal with in the world, threats in the world, uh, refocuses U.S. attention on the risk of terrorism. One of the risks from terrorism is terrorists acquiring weapons of mass destruction. And so um, the idea that Saddam Hussein may be developing weapons of mass destruction or may have them becomes much more threatening in the context of, well, what if he supplied those to a terrorist group and then the terrorist group was able to use them against the U.S. homeland? And so even if Iran didn't yet have a weapons of mass destruction program, even if they didn't have nuclear weapons, even if they didn't have chemical weapons and weren't developing them, Well, they could in the future. As long as Saddam Hussein is out there doing bad stuff and is an adversary of the United States, the thinking might have gone, well, this is a potential future threat in terms of giving these weapons to terrorists. And wouldn't we rather deal with him now when he doesn't have a nuclear weapon? Because no one judged that uh, Saddam Hussein had a nuclear weapon. The judgment was he was reconstituting his nuclear weapons program. But imagine that he were to get one in the future, and we can't guarantee that he won't unless we go in there and unseat him. If if he were to get one in in the future, he would be very difficult to deal with, and we want to avoid that situation. And so maybe we should strike now, while we have kind of an international coalition post-9-11, we have the ability, well, we didn't end up with such a coalition, but the idea was we would have that coalition and uh, we have some momentum in terms of like an aggressive foreign policy. Maybe now is the time to take care of it. And it's this kind of idea of a, of a commitment problem that we, we should strike now where we're going to have a less favorable environment to deal with it later that may have partly driven this conflict. And that ties in with some of the other theories out there about why we got into this war, including like reshaping the geopolitical environment in some way post 9-11, addressing this persistent threat. Maybe there's this idea that uh, some of the folks, the neocons who were in government, you know, always wanted to get rid of the regime. And so now is the time to do so. And this weapons of mass destruction thing just kind of adds ammunition to that idea. So I do think the argument about WMD for policymakers wasn't so much Relying on okay, they have them now. That was the argument I made mean to the pop uh, to the public, right? It, there was almost this uh, sleight of hand going on with the WMD language because when people said WMD, everyone thinks nuclear, sort of. But really, no one said they had nuclear weapons. They're like, oh, they might be working on nuclear weapons, but no one thought that was very far along. But that was kind of there was this little sleight of hand. Well, they have WMD. Of course, the WMD they had, and they didn't say this as clearly, we thought they had chemical weapons, right? We didn't think they had nuclear weapons, but we would say WMD to kind of like ally that, that distinction. The idea that they currently had uh, this capability was less important than the idea that they might get it in the future and that this created a dynamic where the Bush administration thought now is the time to act so that we're on more favorable ground.
0: Yeah, I, I, I agree with all of that. I mean, I think the, the Bush administration did a very good job, like good in the sense of accomplishing the goals that they set out to accomplish. I think, you know, looking at it normatively, a terrible job because they, they putwinked the American people. But they did a very good job at, at sort of making the weapons of mass destruction sort of idea so vague and opaque, yet at the same time incredibly scary. That was it. Was then easy for Americans? I mean, many Americans obviously did not want to get into the Iraq War, but you could at least have a justification. You could say, like, we just experienced nine eleven. You have this this terrible dictator Saddam Hussein. He's got this weapons program. Who knows what he's going to give it to Al Qaeda or ISIS? Who was you know not 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 really on the radar yet for a lot of Americans, but but could be. You know, like all of these these the groups that want to destroy the United States. You have somebody potentially making weapons to give them to these groups. So it's not it's not far-fetched that you know people would 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 buy into this and say this is a terrible thing we need to, we need to prevent this from happening. The other thing by the way this is on the rhetoric that I think is really fascinating and there have been and people have looked at this. You know, the other thing that Bush did uh, I think successfully again for him was linking Saddam Hussein weapons of mass destruction and 9/11 together. So, like when you when you watch Bush talk about what was going on with Saddam Hussein, he would link it almost, you know, I- exclusively to 9-11. Like the, the sentences that he would, would say always had these words together. And, you know, if you if you say nouns together enough, people start to believe that they're connected, right? So that you know, when they do these polls, these Gallup polls, uh, after the Iraq war, and they ask people like, you know, did they find weapons of mass destruction in Iraq? Uh and the answer is no, they did not. A shockingly high number of Americans believed that they did. And it's not because they had some, you know, they, they saw a news story that said they did. It's not because there was some, you know, sort of intelligence that came out that showed, yeah, it turns out they did have weapons of mass destruction, and that ended up being wrong. It was simply because one might argue that the words were connected so often that people made this association in their heads like "Oh Iraq weapons of mass destruction?" and so, yeah, that sounds right. I think they had weapons of mass destruction so I think there's a there's a, a a piece of this just around rhetoric alone and the idea of sort of framing you know the Iraq war that the Bush administration uh you know did successfully from their perspective and and you know, I think has a lot to do with the way that Americans kind of understood what was going on.
1: Yeah, no, I agree. To, to say that the WMD situation was not the sole driver, that the existence of current WMD was not the sole driver of of conflict is not to remove responsibility for messing this up from the intelligence community, right? So right. this is clearly a, a serious intelligence analytic failure, maybe also a collection failure. and there have been reports and commissions and uh, lots of uh, congressional commissions, um, independent commissions, lots of folks have looked at the mistakes that were made here. and so you know I don't know that we need to go into a, a lot of detail about this, but the, the bottom line is the intelligence community view was was wrong and it, it kind of owes something to lots of different organizational bureaucratic and analytic failures. Uh, so the, the judgment that the U.S. intelligence community had in the run-up to the invasion, let me say I can actually pull it up here. So the, the national intelligence estimate, uh, national intelligence estimate is a kind of communal view of the U.S. intelligence community, where all the organizations that make up the intelligence community get together and kind of hash out and uh, agreed upon language for what they think the intelligence shows. And these NIEs are kind of, uh, I don't know, flagship assessments that uh, are kind of often publicized and go to the highest levels government, to Congress. And so there was an NIE put out in October of 2002, the bottom line of which is, we judge that Iraq has continued its weapons of mass destruction programs in defiance of UN resolutions and restrictions. That's the first line of the key judgments of the estimate. Baghdad has chemical and biological weapons, as well as missiles with ranges in excess of UN restrictions. And then uh, going down a couple of lines, it says, in the view of most agencies, Baghdad is reconstituting its nuclear weapons program. Although we assess that Saddam does not yet have nuclear weapons or sufficient materials to make any, he remains intent on acquiring them. Most agencies assess that Baghdad started reconstituting its nuclear program about the time that inspectors departed, December 1998. So those are kind of the key judgments that come out on the WMD issue for, for iraq there there's lots of other stuff in here that uh, that wasn 't quite right, so we, we can talk about, but but these are like clear misses, right So it turns out that Iraq didn't have substantial stocks of chemical and biological weapons uh, Iraq didn't appear to be reconstituting its nuclear weapons program, and so the question is well why, why do we get this wrong and so there are, there are a bunch of mistakes that happen here, one of which is a kind of technical mistake. U.S. intelligence analysts saw acquisition of materials, including aluminum tubes, kind of the famous aluminum tubes that came out of this, this story, and the U.S. intelligence community as a whole assessed that these tubes were for centrifuge rotors. That is, they were going to be used to produce highly enriched uranium for a weapon. But the Department of Energy, uh, which has an intelligence component, disagreed with that view. They thought that nuclear program was being reconstituted, but the tubes were not for that. They looked at these tubes and they're like, these are not the right tubes. Okay, so already you have kind of an issue here because the Department of Energy ought to be the place where most of the nuclear or the, the best technical expertise on nuclear weapons resides. So here we have, you know, some of the intelligence community is making their assessment that the nuclear weapons are being reconstituted. Based solely on these aluminum tubes, and yet here we have the government 's experts on nuclear issues telling them actually these tubes aren 't right for this purpose right? and then we had source reporting on mostly on chemical weapons um, that turned out to be uh, the source turned out to be bad the source was lying, and this is kind of the famous curveball source that was uh, uh, run by Germany. There were all sorts of issues with uh, U.S. direct access to this source versus German access to this source. So we have a number of lessons learned here about how much weight the U.S. intelligence community can put on foreign-run sources. To what extent do U.S. intelligence officials and, and um, intelligence officers need to be in the room with this source to be able to trust what's, go- what's going on here? And then there was a kind of a organizational issue associated with this NIE, which is that there are a number of dissenting views in this NIE, and policymakers who read this, at least later, claimed that they did not understand that there, were, there was significant dissent within the U.S. intelligence community about the views that were expressed here, even though the document is full of these dissents, right? But it's, it's the, the uh, policy officials didn't catch that, right? They felt that this was a strongly held view of the intelligence community. There is a section at the end of the key judgments that is written entirely by the State Department's intelligence branch uh, called INR. And their view is that there isn't enough evidence here to make a case that Iraq is pursuing uh, a nuclear weapons program um, that just, just falls short of that evidentiary uh, standard. And so they said that, you know, we have this this kind of circumstantial evidence, but it's not enough. This uh, aluminum tube thing is like central to the argument, but the folks at the Department of Energy don't think it's for that. So how can we even call this part of the of the nuclear program? So there are all, there are all these kind of issues with with the assessment that somehow don't make it to the policymakers' ears. And part of that is like when you're briefing this, you probably aren't spending a lot of time on these dissenting views. You're giving the like community view, and that is something that has changed, right? Um, as a, as a lesson from the from this NIE. There have been a number of lessons learned from the Iraq intelligence experience that I think affect uh, U.S. intelligence analysis, collection, and analysis to this day. But I think to understand what's going on in the Iraq analysis, you have to think about the 9 11 analysis. So, a couple of years earlier, big terrorist attacks on the United States, and the intelligence community was heavily criticized for missing what was like, you know, a really impactful. Thing okay, and this was considered an intelligence failure, right? The the U.S. intelligence community failed to identify these uh, these hijacker, the 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 folks who would take over the airplanes. They failed to identify the terrorists who were going to like uh, flight school and all this stuff that that should have been red uh, red flag, and they they didn't put two and two together and figure out that this was the plan. And so after nine eleven, there was a lot of attention in the intelligence community to. Connecting the dots, right? To making sure that they weren't they were being aggressive and trying to find those connections. And I think that informs the judgments that were made for the in the Iraq case, where a lot of this is quite circumstantial. And at the heart of it is this idea that Saddam Hussein, uh, why wouldn't he let inspectors in? To, to, look at the, to look at his nuclear facilities if he wasn't plotting something, if he wasn't trying to reconstitute these, these weapons programs. And so there was a very circumstantial case. In retrospect, there are plenty of reasons Saddam Hussein might not want to have inspectors in, in the country, right? But at the time, it felt like, well, this is clear evidence that this guy's up to no good, right? And then couple that with an aluminum tubes, sure, some people think those tubes are for something else, but like, you know, could, could they be used for centrifuges? Yeah, maybe. Right. So, so there, if you are trying to connect those dots, there's a way to do it. And given the lessons of 9-11, there is a push, I think, this maybe wasn't explicit, but it kind of in the water there was this idea that we should connect those dots if we can, right. We don't want to be surprised again. And I think that informs what's going on in 2002. Okay. So after this assessment comes out and, and then there's a war and then it, uh, is clear that this was wrong at some point. Although it wasn't clear to the U.S. intelligence community, I don't think that it was wrong until a lot later than it was clear to, like, the American public that it was wrong. But once the intelligence community tries to kind of come to grips with uh, the mistakes that were made here, there are uh, a number of lessons that come from it. So one is better demonstrating to the policymaker the uncertainty that underlies your assessment, and th- this is something that 's a common critique of the of the intelligence before the Iraq war is everyone thought there was consensus everyone thought this was uh in George Tenet's words a slam dunk case um, this is the director of the CIA at the time told president bush in the oval office after giving after this briefing was given this is a slam dunk case that those are words that he uh, you know regrets of course right but but it this idea that there wasn't enough understanding on the policymaker's side about the uncertainty of the assessments. A counter argument here is that maybe the policymakers didn't really care about the uncertainty in the assessments, but but the best practice here would be to say, look, we're not sure about this. Here's the reasons we're not sure. And so intelligence writing after the Iraq uh, NIE uh, became much more kind of littered with Phrases that try to demonstrate uncertainty, confidence levels, and probabilities and maybes, and attention to here are the things that our assessment is based on. That if that turns out to be incorrect, like all that uh, curveball. Uh, source reporting that talked about chemical weapons in Iraq. If this turns out to be incorrect, here's how it would change our assessment. Or making clear that our assessment hinges on this one piece of reporting, this one source. And if that source is bad, well, who knows, right? Or our assessment is based on this idea of the aluminum tubes. And so if you believe the Department of Energy that these tubes are not for nuclear weapons, well, then you should not believe this overall assessment, making clear, this is called linchpin analysis, making clear what is underlying the assessments that we're making. And that has been a major change in uh, in U.S. intelligence analysis and analytic work since this, this case. And the other thing that we want to try to do and have done uh, more aggressively since Iraq is to demonstrate this dissent, right, so that that policymakers can never again claim that they don't know that there's disagreement in the intelligence community. And so whereas in the Uh, This NIE in in the Iraq case, there are footnotes taken by individual intelligence organizations like the State Department and like the Department of Energy to say, hey, uh, we disagree with this. And that's in a footnote. Now they are in the text, right? They're actually in the text and the key judgments in the Iraq case too, but but now they're in the text everywhere so that there's no excuse. You didn't look down to the bottom of the page to the small print to see this. Fine. We're going to put it in in bold letters right next to the, the main assessment. The Department of Energy disagrees. The State Department disagrees. And here's why. And so there was much more of an emphasis in the presentation to policymakers in illustrating this dissent. And among the analysts themselves, there's much more emphasis in figuring out what's behind the dissenting views. Okay, so we want to get to let the State Department get away with just being like, well, we don't agree. Right. And we'll put that in the document. No, State Department, you have to say, what is it that makes leads you to a different conclusion than everybody else? Because maybe we need to interrogate that. Right. Maybe there's something useful there. And so there was a a big uh, push in the U.S. intelligence community to not fall victim to this kind of groupthink, to identify the dissent in the group to like, bring it out, to interrogate it, to figure out what's driving that dissent. And ultimately, you know, sometimes there are just annoying people in the room who refuse to agree, and that's fine. And, and in that case, we're just going to put that dissent front and center in the document. But in some cases, that dissent can help us understand what is wrong with our analysis or what kinds of information we need to acquire to resolve these uncertainties. So you say to the State Department, okay, you disagree. What if we had a, a source that told us this other thing? Would that help us understand? Would that help us bring you on board? Or would that cast doubt on your views? Maybe it would. Well, let's go see if we can get that information to solve this problem, right? So dissent can also help direct your attention to gaps in your intelligence collection. And I think that's been kind of also a big push um, since the, the Iraq case.
0: Well, Jeff, I, I've never seen you more animated than, than when talking about uh, nuclear weapons and, and the NPT or intelligence. I mean, that was that was 20 minutes of a a deep dive (laughs) into the intelligence failures uh, in Iraq and why they happened and and why they should not happen again. I think that was fantastic. Uh, I don't have a whole lot to add. I I think, you know, your your analysis was was spot on. I mean, I think it it points to I mean, what I've always been struck in in doing historical case studies, um, you know, leaders often seemingly say in retrospect, they want nuance, right? They want the sort of like, tell me, tell me the level of certainty and the probability and the confidence levels and blah, blah, blah. But in the in the moment, before the decisions get made, oftentimes they kind of want to be told in, in in more or less black and white ways, like, what is going on here? What is happening? Tell me what's happening, right? So so George Tennant doesn't say this is a slam dunk necessarily just because he's trying to like impress. Bush, it's partially because Bush wants to know, like, what, is this a slam dunker or not? Like, tell me, like, I don't want, I, I'm 65% sure I got my confidence is is this, I'm somewhat confident, but maybe this and oftentimes they don't want that, right? So I think this points to the, the, the real sort of trickiness that, that comes in with decision making at these highest levels. You can be as probabilistic in your language uh, as you want, but oftentimes decision makers just want to know, tell me what you think. Tell me what the bottom line here is. Give me the bullet points. And for something as consequential as a war, that's obviously very problematic, but you could also see why. If I'm the U.S. president and the intelligence uh, intelligence community is coming to me and saying, well, we think it's probably this, but it could be that, and we're not sure about this one source, and and it's so complicated, you're just going to get lost. You're going to say, I don't know what to think anymore, Right. So at the end of the day, decisions are often made on on more simplifying types of of devices like heuristics and intuition and stuff like that. And so I think what you've talked about is like suggesting that this, this is so challenging. It's challenging to get the intelligence right, number one, but it's also from a communication perspective, incredibly challenging to frame that intelligence in a way that's accurate and gets the probabilities right, but also gives the decision maker what they need. Uh, and sometimes those things are not necessarily uh, overlapping. So I, I, I thought your, your take was, was really interesting.
1: On this uh, idea you brought up that, that, you know, the policymakers want simplicity. They don't want nuance. They don't necessarily want a 65% probability. Um, and I think from the intelligence perspective, you know, the intelligence community shouldn't care what they want. They should give them what they need. Right. Which is, he, it's 65, it's 66%. What are you going to do? Right? Like the, the tr- truth to power, that, that's how it's supposed to work. You want to tell right. the truth to policymakers. And then if they choose to ignore the nuance, which I suspect you're right, they, they will often do, then that's a different kind of an argument. But it's, it's hard to argue that the intelligence community shouldn't tell the truth, shouldn't give the policymakers uh, the best idea of what the true probability is, right? And I mean, I, I, you know, I've seen this before that the policymakers do want the simple, the simple version. I was in a, a National Security Council meeting and I was briefing the National Security Council meeting or the, and uh, uh, said to me, he's like, so I just given the, the intelligence line, right? We assess this. And then he says, yeah, but what do you think? You know, <laughs> right. And I kind of looked at him and then I just repeated the assessment. We assess this. <laughs>
0: <laughs> this is what this is what i think yeah this I mean, right. is what
1: i think right like i know you want me to yeah. tell you like it's a slam dunk do it well i'm not going to do that this is actually what i think okay that's why i gave you that assessment but they want they want the answer they think somehow that this the 65% the low probabilities the the confidence assessments all of that is a way of kind of disguising mm-hmm. what the analyst kind of deep down knows to be true but it's not right it's it's a way of illustrating to the policymaker, here is the actual uncertainty behind the judgment. And you ought to know about that, even if you choose to ignore that uncertainty. But George W. Bush would rather there be no uncertainty. We all would, right? But, But that's just not the world that we're in. And so, you know, I think it would be great if policymakers were better at this kind of probabilistic assessment at understanding what the uncertainty is and making kind of a calculated bet based on the uncertainty they understand. They, obviously, we'd all love the world to be a certain place in it, and it's not.
0: Well, it actually, I mean, it, it might be the case that um, this is where something like AI or computers, you know, could help, right? I mean, it's its hard to imagine George W. Bush sitting down in front of a computer and saying to the comp- chat GPT, tell me what decision I should make with respect to war. Um, but on the other hand, there might be computer... It's not that hard to imagine, that actually. <laughs> Well, there are there and it have been sort of like computer programs designed for these types of purposes to make decision making more rational, right? Where like you actually are forced to consider alternatives, and you're forced to sort of like assess a probability of certain of something happening, and the human you know brain is like kind of bad at figuring this all out, but with the aid of a computer who can kind of show you either visually or maybe in some type of table or whatever, like what the, the numbers kind of point to, what the probabilities mean and stuff like that. You could imagine a situation where a, a program or an AI type of device might, might actually help, you know, and, and not so much telling you what to do, but how to think about what this stuff actually means. When, this, when this, the CIA tells you there's 65% of something happening, 20% of this happening, whatever, how do you bring all those numbers together and make sense of it. That's where, where computers might, might help. Can I just add one more thing? Um, we, we started, like one of the first things I started talking about with the Iraq war was this kind of personalistic, uh, argument. A lot of people say Bush just, you know, he was going to invade Iraq no matter what he, he had a vendetta, etc. One of the things that I do with my students, um, and this kind of speaks to your, your point about there, there being broader kind of like structural, uh, things in the international system that might've made it made sense for the United States to do this. I showed them quotes um, before the war from Al Gore. And Al Gore, uh, of course, you know, did not become president, very close, uh, but did not become president, but would have been president uh, had the, the hanging chads gone a different way and the Supreme Court made a different decision. Uh, OK, so his quotes are actually very hawkish on Saddam Hussein. They're very hawkish on Iraq. Um, he 's not saying like we should invade, but I think a strong case could be made that, regardless of whether it 's Bush or Gore in that position they 're going to make a similar decision for all of the reasons that you just talked about and we 've been talking about for the last half an hour right in other words, this isn 't really about sort of like the internal dynamics going on in bush 's head or the internal dynamics in, in gore 's head or whatever. A strong case can be made that for for very structural reasons and strategic reasons, the United States saw. United States writ large here like decision makers writ large saw this as a, a reasonable strategy to to pursue um and i think you know for that reason it it sheds doubt on the idea that this is just about about bush or just about dick cheney or rumsfeld or or anybody any one individual i just have to i ha- i have to mention this because it's one of the things that i i also bothers me wait cuz decision makers are often you know saying we want like the, the problem with academia is you guys are too complicated, the, the gobbledygook, all your, all your fancy language and your regression and your formal models is just too complicated. No one reads it. No one cares. you got to make your stuff more intelligible to normal people. Well, before the Iraq War, a bunch of academics got together and took out a full-page ad in the New York Times, uh, a diverse group of people, realists and liberals and conservatives and, and Democrats and Republicans, and said – in literally bullet points the Iraq War is a bad idea. You shouldn't do it. Iraq does not pose a national security threat to the United States. You're going to get in. It's going to be hard to get out. And pretty much, if you go back and look at what what those academics said, uh, was was spot on, right? And they called it. And it wasn't complicated. It wasn't a formal model. It wasn't a regression. It was bullet points, and the logic was very easy to understand. So I think sometimes when decision makers say they want simplicity and say they want the bullet point version. What they really mean is I want the bullet points that support what it is that I want to do, not so much like the bullet points that tell me why what I'm thinking about doing is actually a bad idea. So there's also that kind of element uh, in this idea, like the bridging the gap uh, type of thing. So students can go in, online and look at uh, that that uh, ad. It's still on the Internet and see who signed it and the logic that they put down in those
1: bullet points. Yeah, and I'll, I'll drop a link to that in the show notes as well. So we talked a lot about the, the causes of this war. But at the outset, Marcus, you said that the the repercussions of this war were vast, right? Um, and still being felt. Tell me about those repercussions.
0: Oh, I mean, it's hard to it's hard to even know where to be. I mean, I think obviously the first thing you start with is, um, you know, the loss of human life, like the the innocent um, Iraqis that died, the the U.S. servicemen that died, the tens of thousands of people that were, were killed as part of the, the war, the number of people that were displaced, the refugees. I mean, it's from a, just a humanitarian um, perspective, you know, it was a costly war. You also have a situation where the United States, in, in, in invading Iraq, uh, takes out Saddam Hussein, and, and maybe you think that's a good idea, maybe you think that's a bad idea. But what we saw in the immediate aftermath of that was the, the sort of power vacuum that happened um, not so much at the leadership level, because the United States would, you know, sort of installed um, a leader of its choosing, but from a, a civil perspective, Iraq was very de- destabilized. It basically sunk into uh, a civil war, which is one of the reasons why the United States had to stay there for so long, right? It was just was not a safe place to to be, and they had to try to, you know, make things as as calm as possible, and that took a very long time uh, to do. Iraq is in a much better place now than it was, um, but over the last two decades, I mean, the the... Iraq as a country um, was was basically a a failed state for a while, and then in the midst of civil war. And I think that's going to have repercussions for them domestically for a long time. Um, the The costs of the Iraq War are astronomical. So, for you think about um, the latest numbers, I I was pulling it up earlier. You know, estimates. uh, You know, obviously depends on like what you count. Uh, Do you count like loss of productivity and stuff like that? But like between like two and three trillion dollars for the U.S. which the United States couldn't pay for, so it had increased its debt. Uh, and so, as a consequence of that, you might think about the economic, you know, uh, sort of uh, trials and tribulations that normal Americans uh, felt. The social programs that went that, that went under underfunded. The things we could have done with that money. The sort of opportunity costs and, and so on. Um, I think the other thing that happened in the Broader kind of international relations perspective is that the United States, you know, famously goes to the UN, uh, makes Colin Powell does this this sort of you know show of of intelligence. The United States sees the writing on the wall that they're not going to get the, the the Security Council to vote for this, and they're like, we're going to go and invade anyway. And so, you know, contrary to the first Gulf War, where they had this broad coalition and they everybody thought that Iraq invading Kuwait uh, just was a total violation of international law, they didn't have this coalition. Uh, They didn't have the support of the United Nations and it didn't matter. They decided to go in. So I think that, you know, you might think the United Nations doesn't have a lot of legitimacy to begin with. This certainly was not a great thing for international institutions and international organizations, specifically the U.N. It was another instance of a of a great power uh, basically deciding to do what it wanted and telling the U.N., you know, you don't really uh, matter in this particular case. I think that also, therefore, had ramifications for the United States relationship with other countries, particularly Russia. One of the things that Russia, that Vladimir Putin talks a lot about, is the hypocrisy of the West. And what he means is uh, the violations of the United States. His perception of violation of the United States of international law, of Iraq's sovereignty. United States decides it's going to go invade a, a country, take out their leader, uh, and then the United States is critical of, of Russia when Russia either does similar things in, in Crimea and in Ukraine, or just more generally, the United States likes to talk about. Uh, you know, sort of like human rights and these, these broad ideals and, and democracy and stuff like that. And then it goes and invades countries, you know, sort of willy nilly. Right. So like, that, that's the argument that gets made in Russia. You can make the argument that that then is, is one of the reasons why a lot of Russians think that the United States is, is just hypocri- hypocritical and that what they're doing in Ukraine is no different than what the United States has been doing. Right? And it's actually hard to refute that argument because the United States did invade Iraq against international law. We did not have a UN resolution that allowed us to go invade Iraq, right? So there's there are lots of different sort of consequences here. Um I don't think any of these you can draw like a, a direct causal arrow between the Iraq war and the invasion of Ukraine, certainly not. But I don't think that it helps uh the United States uh case when, when the Iraq war is part of, of the United States' history and Russia sees this and understands that the United States got away with it, uh and Thinks that it can it can do uh, similar things. I think lastly, you know, one of the things that happens after the Iraq war domestically um, is a further reduction. I mean, a further reduction, but a a reduction of sort of Americans faith in the, the, the decision makers in Washington the Iraq war is tricky because George W. Bush obviously was a very controversial president. A lot of people uh, thought that he was, you know, his election itself was somewhat, you know, sort of marred by the, the the fact that it had to go to the Supreme Court and they had to make a decision. It was a very unique uh, situation in 2000. And a lot of people didn't like George W. Bush. And when this happens and we see the ramifications of it, I think the polarization, which, you know, had been starting, it gets accelerated. Right, and so the situation we're now in in 2023—a in a highly polarized environment where Republicans and Democrats, you know, basically disagree on, on virtually everything. Identity politics kind of rules everything. I think you can sort of see the beginnings of at least some of that uh, back in the in the Iraq War invasion because this was a real controversial decision. And when it comes out that the the intelligence was wrong, and then there's allegations that Bush was doing this, despite the fact that he he you know the intelligence didn't matter. He wanted to do this. Like this is this is a, a moment where I think people start to have a lack of trust uh, in government, and polarization kind of kind of kicks in. So I think the ramifications have been vast. I think they're domestic. They're, they're, lots of things have happened. Uh, international, lots of things have happened. And it was a tremendous mistake, and, and I think we're going to still be paying for it, both financially and politically and socially, for a very long time.
1: Yeah, I, I pretty much agree. I, the only thing I would add to your, to your list uh, would be... The crippling of U.S. policy in the Middle East Mm -hmm. um, and the Gulf. Uh, And so I I think the Iraq War was the best thing that happened to Iran in a long time. And uh, to this day, Iran is in a much stronger position in the region because of the U.S. invasion. And, you know, this was a real adversary, a, a much more capable adversary than Iraq was um, in, in iran and it 's a, a country that does have strong links to terrorism and does kind of work to the detriment of u s interests all over the world and so the the strengthening of Iran uh, is kind of a, an interesting piece of this story, and we can kind of see some of these ramifications still playing out as, as a, the the new Iraq helps broker better relations between Saudi Arabia and Iran as uh, you know we see kind of some of the traditional lines of control being redrawn within the, the Gulf and the, and the Middle East more widely. And so, uh, yeah, no, I think that's one that also has kind of continuing impact on U.S. policy.
0: I would also go so far as to throw out North Korea as well. I mean, when, when there's an axis of evil and there's three countries on it and you invade one of those countries, it's not completely irrational for the leadership in North Korea to think we might be next and what might prevent the U.S. from invading us? Well, if we had nuclear weapons, that might just prevent that. So I think from a, if your goal as a U.S. policymaker is to maybe try to reassure North Korea that we are not intending regime change, we're not intending to do anything militarily, we're not going to invade, we're not going to... Be, well, that's, all those cases are much harder to make after the Iraq war because we identified three problem countries and invaded one of them, right? And so the claim that we would, you know, be, you're, you're, but you're okay, everything's going to be fine, we're not going to... Much harder to make, right? So, North Korea wanted uh, nuclear weapons before Iraq. Uh, they want nuclear weapons after Iraq. I don't think it changes that, but I think it just affirms and sort of reenergizes uh, for them the need to protect themselves, the need from their own security when the United States, um, you know, invades one third of the axis.
1: If you're going to credit the Iraq War with kind of spurring progress in North Korea's weapons program or causing them to redouble their efforts. Then I think we also have to throw into the mix what happened in Libya, which was the abandonment of a nuclear program. Granted, that program wasn't going anywhere anyway, but it Mm -hmm. seems like maybe there's a case you could make. People argue about this. Maybe there's a case you could make that U.S. invasion um, or the run-up to the invasion, at least— cause Qaddafi to rethink this idea of having a nuclear weapons program sitting around not getting not getting much better, um, and he decided to give up the the program. And maybe even you can give the Iraq war some credit for causing Iran to halt its weapons program in 2003-ish. So the U.S. intelligence community, if you're going to believe anything they say now after this discussion, assessed in 2007 that Iran had halted in 2003 its nuclear weapons program. Hmm. Coincidence, maybe? I don't know. But it it may have decided to adopt kind of a wait and see attitude based on what was going on in Iraq. It didn't want to be kind of holding this active nuclear weapons program while the United States is going around invading countries for having nuclear weapons programs. I think that's fair. Granted, they may have returned to that since, right? But that's a a different president's policy failure, potentially, or that same president later, uh, policy failure. So I think there is maybe a more complicated story around the That's role fair. this had on WMD programs all over the world.
0: That's fair. I think we could both agree. If the idea was that by invading Iraq, the international system would be more stable and, and uh, preferential towards the United States, I don't think that occurred. Yeah, that didn't, that didn't work.
1: Marcus, I think we're going to have to leave it there. We we've covered
0: a lot of territory today. Yeah, we've covered, uh, we covered a lot of territory. I was I was thinking we would do this for ten minutes, and we've done it for about an hour and ten minutes, which is which is great. I mean, I I think it deserved that that conversation. Uh, but we have we we sort of um we've done a lot in Iraq today.
1: Yeah. Well, uh, thanks so much. Um, if you would like to send us a note, let us know. What we should be talking about, where Professor Holmes was wrong, you can do that at cheaptalkpod at gmail.com or go to speakpipe.com slash cheaptalk to leave a voicemail that we can play on the podcast. Thanks to those who are sending in questions. I will uh, kind of bring those into the mix maybe in the next episode. Um, Marcus? Yeah, can I actually, yeah. can I
0: put a teaser in for next week? Please. So uh, I, one of the things I think would be very interesting to talk about, on last, uh, the last pod, we discussed your skepticism. Of treating um, uh, countries, as states, as sort of individuals, as people. And now it's interesting, however, because you, you have, in the course of this conversation about the, the Iraq War, talked about Iraq and the United States as having you know, sort of like uh, decision-making uh, properties, right? Like the United States decided to invade Iraq. And we talked about like, well, wait a second. Interesting. How did that happen? Well, it's, it's not all that clear. It's not like it was just one person said, I'm going to. So it was a state making a decision, right? So I I'm think next week we should dig into this a little bit more. And I think specifically I want to talk about two different concepts that are psychological in nature that I think we can attribute or apply to states precisely because they are uh, uh, persons. And the first is social identity theory, which many listeners will know, know a lot about. And the second, which might be a little bit more foreign of a concept, ontological security, which is a, a sort of big uh, a group of, of, of scholars these days working in this area. And we'll talk about what ontological security means and how it might help us to understand a deep-rooted conflict like in, in enduring rivalries.
1: Are you actively trying to dissuade people from listening to the podcast in the future? Well, this is why we do this. These bits at the end. <laughs> so if you got you get no, this far, you're stuck, right?
0: You're you, well. It's also you're like a um, you're a fan. You know, if you've made it this far, you clearly are all in on what Holmes and Capello have to say. So
1: we're we're not losing. Is, is it also possible that they were? It was an assignment that they received in a class, and, and oh, have gotten good. that that's far for that, that reason.
0: Very good point. Yeah, this will be on the quiz next week. <laughs> <Anthological> <laughs> security.
1: That's right. All right, Marcus, good, good talking to you. Thanks for joining me.
0: I had a lot of fun today, Jeffrey.
1: I know. And I see you're wearing your, uh, you've got like an Eiffel Tower T-shirt on. What's that about? I got
0: an Eiffel Tower t This is from the Paris Marathon, which I ran uh, last weekend. I was over in France, and I ran it, uh, and you get a shirt. It's a very bright shirt. For those of you watching the live stream on YouTube, you can see this, but uh, it's, a, it's a very bright running shirt. Which is good. I mean, if you go in like the woods, you don't you don't get shot because you're not going to be mistaken for a deer or something. It's nice.
1: How was how was the Paris Marathon? How'd you do?
0: I had wanted to go uh, under three hours, which is like a very you know for me anyway is a very difficult uh, thing to do. And I was on pace for that until mile twenty, and like so often in these marathons, that last ten k, the last six miles was brutal. And you know, it was one of those things where I was running along. I'm like I'm, I'm at mile twenty. I'm hitting mile twenty one. I look at my watch. And I had not, I didn't think I was slowing down, but my watch was like, you've been slowing down. So like I had, you know, to run a sub three marathon, you have to run 652 per mile. My mile 21 was like 658 and mile 22 was like 707. And you just see the time like slipping, you know, slipping through your fingers and you can't can't do anything about it. Like you try to get yourself to run faster, like go faster, go faster. and just, your body won't do it. So it, it was tricky, but I, I ended up at 3.03. So it's three minutes over my uh, goal time, which is not bad. One thing about Paris, uh, Professor Caplow that you should know, there are a lot of cobblestones. Hmm. And I think that ended up kind of hurting me a little bit. Like, I don't run on cobblestones. I mean, I understand we're like, a colonial area here. I don't really run on cobblestones very often. They're not particularly forgiving or, or soft, and, and I think they kind of hurt my legs a little bit more um, than, than normal.
1: I think that, that just says you need to start changing your training regimen so that you're, you're training on the appropriate surface. Do they have special treadmill surfaces you can, you can buy that, like, mimic cobblestones or, or brick or, like, other asphalt, other kinds of surfaces? That would be a great. that we should, we should market this. This is a great idea.
0: That is a ridiculously stupid idea. But they <laughs> actually do have a treadmill called the Woodway, which is it kind of mimics running on, like, a boardwalk kind of thing. Um, and the idea, the scientific idea behind it, I guess, is that it's more forgiving somehow because yeah. they're, they're like slats as opposed to like one belt. Um, but no, I think I think a, 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 an asphalt treadmill, which you just proposed, is one of the stupidest things I've ever heard. <laughs> and I've heard a lot of really stupid things.
1: I mean, just on this podcast alone. Right.
0: <laughs> so that but that that one really takes because how would it work, Jeffrey? How would how would an asphalt just picture the physics? Like, how are you getting asphalt to go around? Like, <laughs> it
1: wouldn't as a, be a, a real <laughs> asphalt. It would, it would be mimicking asphalt. Oh, what do you mean man. mimicking? How do you mimic asphalt? I don't know. I don't know. We got to get the the scientist on we'll it.
0: We'll ask. We'll ask ChatGPT if it has any ideas. I'm more of an idea
1: this. guy than an execution guy. You know?
0: Yeah, I've noticed. I've noticed. <laughs> you have pl- plenty of good ideas. You just you know, choose not to act on them.
1: <laughs> Did I tell you about the time I invented French fries with ketchup <laughs> already in them in like a little packet? <laughs>
0: I think I saw that movie. I, I, that that's from a movie from like the nineteen eighties, I believe. No, I, I, I invented that.
1: The problem was that the ketchup would turn like molten when you fried the fries. Of course
0: it would. Yes, of course it would. And Everybody it, knows that. Like it, it burned
1: yourself. Yeah, it burned people. It was very. So we had to abandon that idea.
0: Well, I I'm happy to report I invented the wrap sandwich. Hmm. Yeah, I was like these people are using tortillas for burritos. Let's put some turkey, a little mayonnaise, less tomato in there, and now we have. This new thing that we're going to call a rap sandwich—that's
1: that's brilliant. That. Are you still earning royalties off of that one?
0: No, I have—I received not a dime from the mm-hmm. rap people. It's hard to when you when you create something like that. It's kind of hard to monetize it. You know, I I probably needed to open up a, a restaurant or a store or some type to sell them. And who wants the hassle, really?
1: I invented TiVo in about 1983-84.
0: Oh, I used to love TiVo, that was great. I TiVo like
1: rigged fantastic. two VCRs together. And the idea is you could like pause live, you record the thing, you pause one of them, and then the other one would start rolling.
0: Oh, that's pretty brilliant. That's pretty brilliant. Our audience is our audience has no idea what TiVo is. Yeah, right? that's true. No, no clue. Although I think that company still exists. I think you can actually still buy, believe it or not, like a TiVo like, set. Oh, yeah. And have uh, that as your DVR. Yeah, I think you can. The, the, the remote for the TiVo That's and great. the guide can't beat either of those. Yeah. Can't beat them. Yeah. Cox has nothing on them.
1: Yeah. Well, and I think that, actually, some cable companies have licensed uh, like the TiVo box as their cable box.
0: Ah. Uh, yeah, I thought for a time, like, DirecTV or somebody was, like, hooked up with them, or maybe Dish or somebody. I mean, that, that makes a lot of sense, because they had, the, they had like, the usability, like, user design kind of thing down. And, and today, like, the Contour box from Cox, it's garbage compared to what we had, you know, two decades ago with the TiVo. Like, uh, yeah, it's, it's crazy. Yeah. I'm like an old man. I'm an old curmudgeon uh, when it comes to DVRs. Yeah. Well, we got off on a very interesting start here. Let's, let's rein it in. Let's bring it back to our our, our bread and butter.